Let's open to Genesis chapter 26. We'll be studying verses 12 through 35 this morning. Now, when you study um, one of the books in the Bible that's giving us history, that would be like the Gospels, like Gospel of Matthew gives us history, or even the book of Genesis, which we're studying this morning. When you study a book of the Bible that's giving history, it's important that we understand that the authors are not just giving us history. They're, they're doing that, but they're doing more than that. Under the leadership, the guidance, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are choosing which events to write about, because they don't write about everything that happens. So the Holy Spirit leads them to write, to choose which events to write about, and the Holy Spirit leads them in terms of what to emphasize about those events in order to teach us crucial truths. So it's not just history, it's certain events with certain emphases in order to teach us truths that we need to know and learn. And so as we study Genesis chapter 26 this morning, verses 12 through 35, we want to take a look and especially focus on what does Moses choose to write about? Moses wrote Genesis. So what events does he choose to describe here and what does he emphasize about those events so that we can learn what crucial truth God has for us in this passage? And when we start reading, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, we immediately see Moses emphasizing how God prospers Isaac. So let's ask the question, why does Moses emphasize how God prospers Isaac? Look at what he says in verses 12 through 14. And Isaac sowed in that land throughout seed. He sowed in that land and reaped. In the same year, a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man, and notice all this repetition, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. So you see the emphasis that Moses puts on God prospering Isaac. So why? Would Moses emphasize that? Here's what I think the answer is. At the beginning of this chapter, remember, there was a famine. Most of us have not experienced famines. I'm thankful for that. Those of you who are, well, I'm sure never forget them. But imagine living in a place where there's no food to be purchased in stores. All your food is grown from crops and there's been no rain for a year. So there's no food, there's no crops, there's no stores. Unless something changes dramatically, you're going to starve. That's what Jacob and his family faced, which meant this threatened Isaac and his family. This threatened Isaac and his family, but this also threatened God's promise of salvation. Do you remember why? Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that one of Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head, Satan's head. And the rest of the Bible shows us that that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus came thousands of years later He died on the cross to pay for the sin, to pay for the guilt of everyone who put their trust in him. And so by dying on the cross, Jesus broke Satan's power. Jesus crushed the serpent's head. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus is the the serpent crusher. And then in Genesis 12, so that was Genesis 3, 
Genesis 12, God narrows the focus and says it's through one of Abraham's offspring, one of Abraham's offspring, not just Eve's offspring, which is everyone, one of Abraham's offspring, that someone will be born through whom God will save people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And then in Genesis 17, it gets even narrower. God says it's going to be through one of Isaac's offspring that God is going to bring the serpent crusher. So if it's going to be through one of Isaac's offspring, and if Isaac's family is killed, perishes, dies of starvation in the famine, that would destroy God's promise of salvation. Do you see the problem? Okay, so what does God do? He says to Isaac, move to Hagar. Isaac moves to Hagar. Not Hagar. What is it? Is it Hagar? Look, look at somebody yell it out to me. Herar. Thank you. Hagar was, okay, we know who Hagar was. Move to Herar. Ger, Gerar. Excuse me. Yeah, Gerar. Thank you. So he told Isaac, move to Gerar. And there, this is amazing, Isaac sows seed and reaps a hundredfold. Now don't skip over that. Remember, Jesus talks about 20, 30, 40, 100 fold. 100 fold is a massive crop. This is a huge windfall. So Isaac's family is not just surviving, Isaac's family is thriving. And so once again, this shows that God's, the steamroller of God's promises overcomes every obstacle brought up against it. Remember the theme of Genesis 12 through chapter 35 is God repeats his promise of salvation and secures his promise of salvation. We see that here. God has overcome the problem of the famine. Now just for those of you, like Ben was praying earlier, who are struggling to believe that God is going to keep his promises to you, maybe it's something that's famine-like in your life, see this passage. A hundredfold crop. God's people are not struggling. God was faithful to his promise to Isaac and his family. God will be faithful to his promises to you. Now, next in verses 15 through 22, we see Moses putting great emphasis on how the Philistines harmed Isaac. So why does Moses emphasize that so much? Look at what he says. Start with verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. So years before, the Philistines had animosity toward Abraham and his family, and they stopped up wells. They threw dirt into the wells that had been dug, so they were not no longer usable. And, and the reason Moses mentions this is this sets the stage for what's going to happen in just a few verses. Keep reading. Verse 16, And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, that area, said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now don't miss how costly this would have been. Isaac's there, he and his servants have just cleared this land, and they plowed this land. And they sowed crops on this land. And this land brought a hundredfold harvest. And that would be some farm, right? And here, King Abimelech says, you have to leave. You have to go. Goodbye. Feel what a great loss that would have been. You're, you're walking away from this incredibly productive land, farm, harvest that you had. 
great cost. Keep reading. Verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. That's what was talked about back in verse 15. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Now again, see what Moses is emphasizing here. Isaac's servants are digging a well. It's a lot of work. Digging, digging, digging. And they, have a, they find spring water. So this is no ordinary well. This is spring water gushing up there. But then the herdsmen of Gerar walk up and say, the water is ours. Now that's called like theft, right? It's, I mean, imagine that, that you are out in some mall talking on your phone. Somebody walks up and says, the phone is ours. Or you get out of your car somewhere. People walk up and say, the car is ours. Or you walk out of your apartment. Somebody says, that apartment is ours. So it's, what? Why? So this, this is unjust, unjust. This is theft. This is wrong. Feel the weight of this. And that's why Isaac calls that well Esek, Esek, which means contention. And then read verse 21. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, which means opposition. So again, that water's ours. We want it. All this work that the servants are doing, the herdsmen of Gerar come and take it away. But then look at what happens in verse 22. And he moved from there, dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he, Isaac, called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Okay, so God provides another well so they can keep growing crops and avoid any kind of problem with the famine. But I just want you to feel now, and I think Moses wants us at this point as readers to be thinking, wow, this is a lot of loss that Abimelech and the Philistines brought to Isaac. Isaac had cleared these fields, plowed fields, planted seed, hundredfold. Abimelech says, you got to go, and Isaac has to go. Isaac's servants dig a well, spring water. That water's ours. Lost that well. Another well. Dig a well, water. That water's ours. Another well. So it's just opposition. It's loss. It's injustice that King Abimelech and the Philistines are bringing against Isaac. So why does Moses emphasize this? I think it's to set up what happens in the rest of this chapter. So you should be, like, be all on the edge of your seats now, okay? All right? It's to set up what's going to happen in the rest of the, of the story. That same night, God appears to Isaac. What does Moses emphasize about God's appearing to Isaac? 23 and 24. From there, he, Isaac, went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So first, God says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Now, what's the point of that? I think the point is to remind Isaac, Isaac, just as I was faithful in all of my promises to Abraham, your father, so I will be faithful 
in all of my promises to you. Now think of how faithful God was to Abraham. One of the most powerful evidences of that is that God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child, a son, and decades went by. Decades. No son, no son, no pregnancy, no son. Until by the time Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was in her 90s, they were well past childbearing years, Abraham and Sarah get pregnant and give birth to Isaac. God had promised a son to them. Nothing stopped God's promise from happening. Nothing got in the way of the steamroller of God's promise, overcoming every obstacle to do what God had said he was going to do. That's what God's saying. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Then second, God says, fear not, for I am with you. Isaac has nothing to fear in his future. Nothing to fear. Because God is with him. Now, that does not mean that Isaac will have no difficulties or sorrows or trials. But it means that no matter what happens, he has God in whose presence is fullness of joy. He has God with him, strengthening him, comforting him, satisfying him, and that God promises that whenever God allows trials to come, it's because God's going to use those trials to bring us even more joy in him. So fear not, Isaac. I am with you. You have nothing to be afraid of in your future. And third, God says, I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac, you're going to be the grandfather of a massive nation. I have promised it. You will be the grandfather of a massive nation, the people of Israel. And look at how Isaac responds to these promises, to God's appearing and saying these promises. Verse 25, so he, Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. What does it mean to build an altar? Well, the Hebrew word altar is based on the Hebrew word for animal sacrifices. That's what altars were for. They were for animal sacrifices. You could call this, Isaac built a, a sacrifice place for the Lord. And this probably means that he gathered up big rocks, you know, piled them on top of each other to a level, level place where he could offer a sacrifice. And we know that animal sacrifices were happening because Noah offers an animal sacrifice back in, in uh, Genesis chapter 8. And so I think, it doesn't, Moses doesn't say this specifically, but it's in the word altar. I think what this probably means is that he worshipped with animal sacrifices. Now, re remember how animal sacrifices worked in the Old Testament. Read the early chapters of Leviticus to see this. You would bring a spotless, blemishless lamb, and you would lay your hands on top of that lamb as a picture of your guilt being transferred to the lamb. This is just a picture. This isn't what really happens, but it's a picture of your guilt being transferred to this lamb, and then you would kill the lamb. You'd, you'd cut its throat, kill it, and then you would burn its carcass um, on the altar. Now, all of the Old Testament animal sacrifices, of course, were pointing ahead to what Jesus would do on the cross. 
to what Jesus Christ would do. Remember, John the Baptist says in the early chapters of John, when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what that means is that when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you trust him to forgive you for your sins, to change your heart, to fill you with his love and his presence, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, all your guilt for past, present, and future sin, all of your guilt is transferred onto Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago and was punished in Jesus. So church, if all your guilt was punished in Jesus 2,000 years ago, how much more punishment do you face now? None. Are we clear on that point? This is a beautiful picture. And all through the Old Testament, these animal sacrifices, they didn't forgive sins, but they pictured how those sins were going to be forgiven. So here Isaac builds an altar, and he's worshiping God. He's offering a sacrifice, showing that he sees these promises as precious, He sees that these promises are mercy. He doesn't deserve them. He's trusting these promises that God has given to him. And I think the reason God appears to Isaac and speaks these promises is to prepare Isaac for what happens in the next verses. So what did Isaac need to be prepared for? Look at verses 26 through 29. When Abimelech, remember Abimelech, the guy who said, leave, When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzoth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You should chuckle a little bit about that, right? A little bit of selective memory here on Abimelech's part. But you are now blessed to the Lord. Abimelech does recognize that. And notice how Moses here reminds us of Abimelech and the Philistines' wickedness. Isaac says, you hated me. We have no reason to doubt that Isaac's telling the truth there. Abimelech hated him. And then notice Abimelech claiming that they had done nothing wrong to Isaac. Okay? We've, done, we've not touched you, have done nothing but good to you. Clearly wrong. But now Abimelech and the Philistines want to make a peace treaty with Isaac. They want to live in peace with Isaac. They want Isaac to live in peace with them. So what did Isaac do? Verse 30, 31. So he, Isaac, made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Isaac made them a feast, ate and drank with them. Now in Middle East cultures, and we are in a Middle East culture here, right? In Middle East cultures, this kind of a meal is very significant. Here's how... Bible scholar Victor Hamilton describes it in his commentary on Genesis. Look at what he says. He says, This meal is not simply a courtesy extended by Isaac to Abimelech as host to visitors. It's not just because Abimelech's hungry, we'll give him something to eat. It is rather an integral element of the covenant-making process in which, in a sense, the individual 
offering the meal, admits the other individual to his family circle. So Isaac welcomes Abimelech and his two aides there into his fellowship, into his extended family. It's a very warm, merciful, compassionate response on Isaac's part. In other words, Isaac here is in his heart, he has forgiven Abimelech and the Philistines for what they have done. And he shows that by the mercy and the compassion in having this meal with them and in making the covenant of peace with them. And to help us to see that Isaac was right in doing that, look at what Moses describes in verses 32 and 33. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So God had him find water that day just to confirm, comfort, console Isaac. You did the right thing in having the feast with them. You did the right thing in making the covenant with them. Okay, so what's Moses' point then? I think his point is to help us to see how Isaac forgives Abimelech and the Philistines for the injustice, for the harm, for the wrong that they had done to him. Moses wants us to see Isaac forgiving, showing compassion, and Moses wants us to see Isaac as an example of what we are called to do. This is how God wants his people to live. This is how Jesus calls his followers to live, to forgive others. Now, what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness means that you choose, commit in your heart to not hold against this person what they did to me. I'm not going to hold it against them. Instead, I'm choosing to love them, to pursue their well-being, to want their good. That's forgiveness. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm going to love them, pursue their well-being, and want their good. Now, a few months ago, a woman here sent me an email with a question about forgiveness, which I thought that is a very important question. She'd read a blog post, and the author talks about verses where Jesus says, and and he does say, um, if someone harms you and they repent, forgive them. There are verses like that. If somebody does something wrong and they repent, you should forgive them. And what this blog post author concluded is that we, should, we only need to forgive people if they repent. If they don't, we don't need to forgive them. Is that right? I don't think so because of a couple different scriptures, one of which is Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. This is a very strong statement. So Moses has emphasized forgiveness back in Genesis 25. Now we're seeing that this is repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 25. He says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now notice those three words, whenever. That means we should always forgive. Notice that word, anything. That means we should forgive no matter what someone has done, 
And notice that word, anyone. That means we should forgive everyone, anyone who's hurt us, no matter what they've done and no matter how they've responded, whether it's been in repentance or not. So no matter what somebody does, whether they repent or not, Jesus calls us to forgive them. Now, it is important to point out that if somebody doesn't repent, that may change the relationship you have with them as compared to somebody who does repent. Let's just think of the, the tragic, heartbreaking situation of a husband who is physically abusing his wife. Jesus would call the wife to forgive her husband, to choose to not hold this against him, to choose to want his good, to desire his good, to seek to love him. But if he's not repentant, if there's been no change, then for her own safety and for the children's safety, it'd be appropriate for her to separate from him for a time, to wake him up, shake him up, have him see the, what he's doing so that there would be repentance that would come, right? So the relationship would be different depending on the response that the husband has towards what he's been doing to her. Does that make sense? But if the husband is convicted by the Holy Spirit, says, what have I been doing? I am so sorry. And, and, and shows that there's trust being built and that he's changing, then it would be appropriate for them to come back together again and, and for that marriage to continue. We're not talking about divorce in this situation particularly. We're simply talking about safety for the wife. There's a lot more to say about that, but it is important to understand that repentance can change the kind of relationship we have, but we are always called to forgive. So let that just, just rest upon us. We are always called to forgive everyone, anyone who harms us in any way. Remember, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Well, that implies forgiveness, certainly. These are, these are enemies. So that's what's being talked about in, in this passage. Now, the question is, how do you forgive someone who's hurt you? How do you do that? How could Isaac have forgiven Abimelech and the Philistines for just the blatant wrong they had done to him? I mean, Isaac would have felt a great sense of loss, a great sense of injustice of what they had done. So how would he have been able to forgive them? And I think the answer Moses wants us to understand is it's by having God remind us of his promises. Having God remind us of his promises promises. Remember the night before Abimelech asks Isaac for a peace treaty, God appears to him and reminds him of these promises. And think of how these promises would have affected Isaac. There's Isaac keenly feeling aware of the injustice of what they had done, the harm of what they had done, the loss that he had incurred. And then God appears to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Which means as I was faithful to Abraham to keep all of my promises to him, Isaac, I'm going to be faithful to you to keep all my promises to you. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, has sworn I will keep all my promises to you now and forever. Think of how that would have affected Isaac. Then next God says, fear not, for I am with you. In spite of all that's happened, in spite of all that they've done to you, you have me, Isaac, the God in whose presence is fullness of joy forever. You have me, I am promising, to be with you. 
And I promise I'm going to give you even more joy in me through every trial you face, those trials and future trials. Fear not, Isaac, I will be with you. And he says, I will bless you and multiply your offspring. None of what they've done, none of what anybody does is going to stop me from fulfilling my promise. You're going to be the grandfather of a great nation. My promises are like a steamroller. Nothing can stop them from happening. And as Isaac thought about these promises, prayed over these promises, heard God reminding him of these promises, as Isaac trusted these promises, his heart would have been comforted, strengthened, filled, freed, and he would have been able to forgive. And that's what will happen to us as well. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So what counts before God is not whether you're circumcised or not. What counts in terms of salvation is faith. The kind of faith that works itself out in love. It's faith working through love. That means that faith produces love. F.F. Bruce, New Testament scholar, says in commenting on this verse, faith is the root and love is the fruit. Faith is the root. Trusting God's promises. You're trusting all that God promises to be to you in Jesus Christ. And as that root is there, then love, which includes forgiveness, will be the fruit. So when your heart is feeling completely non-forgiving, we all get there at times, right? But the answer is just, well, I'm just going to never be able to forgive then. No, no, no. Go back to faith. I need to nurture faith. I need to strengthen the root because faith is the root and love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion is the, is the fruit. Galatians chapter 5 or 6. Now let's get specific. I'm sure some of you have people in your lives who have uh, harmed you. Tragically, wrongly harmed you. And you haven't forgiven them. Maybe it's somebody at work who is taking credit for your work. Or maybe it's somebody at the workplace who is saying bad things about you to other people at the workplace. Or maybe you have a manager at work who is just wicked, oppressive, abusive, bad person. Maybe you have family members who've slandered you. Maybe you have people in your life who've stolen from you or cheated you. Maybe there's people who've simply ignored you. Maybe you have a spouse who's mistreated you. Maybe you have parents who've, who've harmed you in some way. So, I wouldn't be surprised. We've, we've all had people who've hurt us, but have you forgiven them? Are you holding it against them? Do you love them? Do you want their good? Are you pursuing their well-being? Have you forgiven them? Now, if, if all you focus on is what they've done to you, you will not be able to forgive them. That will just leave you with, with a heart sense of loss, um, a heart sense of injustice, and there will be a lot of anger there. There will be a lot of pain there. But that changes when you stop and look at God's promises. Let me give you a list of some of God's promises. Here's what God has promised us in Jesus Christ. He's promised to forgive you for all your sins. This is 
massive. We were all under God's wrath, facing God's wrath and judgment forever in hell. We've all faced that. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid for the sins of all who would trust him. And so because you're trusting Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. So forever, you have God smiling upon you with love, pursuing you with good, pouring out his blessings and his favor upon you. No more wrath, just love and mercy and blessing forever. All your sins are forgiven. God promises he will change your heart. He will progressively overcome the sin in your life. You'll find yourself growing more and more loving, more and more forgiving. He will fill you with joy in his presence. He'll cause every circumstance in your life to bring about even more joy in him. He'll work all those details out. He'll keep you persevering in faith all the way till heaven. And he promises that forever, you're going to be in heaven with the never-ending joy and the ever-increasing joy of knowing, worshiping, loving God with all of his people. I mean, just think, that is your destiny which has been secured for you through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Your eternity is set forever. You're going to be experiencing ever-increasing joy in worshiping God, his holy son, with all the redeemed. Those are God's promises. And when you set your heart on those promises... Your sense of loss, of what this other person has done to you, will be healed. There will be peace. There will be joy. There will be fullness. And you'll be able to forgive. You'll be able to not let it go. You'll be able to, to let it go, not hold it against him, her, pursue this person's well-being. Let me give you an example. Let's say that somebody stole from you 10,000 durham. No reason, no excuse. They just stole 10,000 durham. That, that's a big hit. You could do a lot for your family. That 10,000 durham could, could accomplish a lot. That would be painful. You can you imagine the, the anger, the sense of injustice? That's just wrong. They've stolen 10,000 durham from me. Now imagine that you, you go to do some bank business, and while you're at the bank, the, the bank officer says, I just want to remind you, you, know, you, you have 50 billion durham in your account here. 50 billion durham. Oh. Oh. I, I guess I forgot. What would happen to your pain and sense of loss about the 10,000 durham when the bank officer reminds you that you have 50 billion durham? Would it diminish your sense of loss and pain? Would you, like, could you let that go? You're all looking like you're just in shock. Are you still, you're still thinking about 50 billion Durham. Okay, put that out of your mind, all right? But can you feel how this would, would change your heart? Can you? Would you walk out of there still angry at this person? Still, where is this person? I'm going to get back. at the, you, you'd, you'd be able to let it go, right? Now, I don't mean to make light of the kind of pain and suffering that we can experience at other people's hands. Some of you, I would guess, have suffered terribly from other people. I don't want to make light of that at all. That's not the point of the illustration. The point is not to make light of the suffering. It's to dial up the wonder of God's promises. 50 billion Durham is an understatement, a massive understatement. What we have in God through Jesus Christ is massive. All the promises of God and when you are not forgiving someone, 
when what you're feeling is the sense of loss and the grief and the pain, it's because you're focusing on the loss and you have forgotten the promises. But see, there's good news here. How do you forgive when you're so angry, when you're so bitter? By looking at God's promises. By saying, I believe, help my unbelief. By saying, strengthen my faith. Make these promises more real to me. Pour out your grace upon me now. Use your word now to change my heart. And he will. He will. 50 billion Durham. Your heart will change. That's how it works. That's how forgiveness works. So this is what Moses wants us to understand from this passage. He wants us to see that when we remember God's promises, just like God appeared to Isaac and reminded him of his promises, we will be able to show mercy, we'll be able to forgive. (laughs) Now there's one more section in this chapter, verses 34 and 35. Why does Moses include this? We read about Esau's sin and Isaac and Rebekah's bitterness. So why mention Esau's sin and Isaac and Rebekah's bitterness? Look at verses 34 and 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. This is wrong. The Hittites were not a godly people. The Hittites were idol worshipers. Many of them burned their babies on altars. The Hittites were a wicked, wicked people. And God wanted Isaac's children to marry godly people. And Esau said, no. And he married Beery the Hittite. Not only that, he also married Basimoth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Two wives. I know this is a big topic. There is polygamy in the Old Testament, but it's clear from Genesis 2 that that's not God's intention. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. God's plan is monogamy. Many of the heroes of the faith had multiple wives it's clear that that's not God's intention. Jesus made that crystal clear in the Gospels. Paul makes that crystal clear in his letters. So here Esau sins by taking ungodly wife, an ungodly wife and two ungodly wives. So why would Moses include this in the passage? I think one reason is just simply to remind us that the trials keep coming for Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah experienced bitterness from this. And also because we're going to see in the next chapters, not even this stops the steamroller of God's promises from accomplishing the goal of salvation. So we will see that. But now let me close with two takeaways. First one is for those of you who are struggling to forgive right now. First of all, we love you. We all, every one of us in this room knows what it's like to struggle with forgiveness, right? Church, we all know it is not easy. So you are not alone. No one by nature is a forgiver. We all by nature are sinners. So none of us by nature forgives like God wants us to forgive. But if you're struggling to forgive, set your heart on trusting God's promises in Christ. The reason you're not forgiving is because you have forgotten God's promises. And you are focused on what this person has done to you. And as long as that's your focus, you will not be able to forgive. 
And God says, don't ignore what they've done, don't deny what they've done, but focus not on what they've done, but on my promises. And let me give you an example. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Here's a promise that you could pray over right now or this afternoon. Beautiful promise. Peter says, and after you've, after you've suffered a little while, okay, you've suffered, you're forgiving someone, let's apply it in that way. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, that's beautiful, because of Jesus, everything that's coming to us from God all the time is grace, 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 grace. It's all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is your destiny, eternal glory, beholding God's glory in Christ. The most beautiful, majestic reality in the universe is God's glory in Christ. So the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and here's what he promises to do, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And when you set your heart on a promise like this and trust a promise like this, your heart will be healed, it will be filled, it will be strengthened. You will love. You'll be able to not hold against this other person what they've done. You'll be able to pursue their good, love them, seek their well-being. You'll be able to forgive them. That's the first takeaway. If you're struggling to forgive, set your heart on trusting God's promises. Second takeaway. If you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, if you're here, you're interested in learning about Jesus, we're glad you're here. We want to help you learn all you can. So if you're not yet trusting Jesus Christ, see, from what we talked about this morning, see all that God promises to be to you in Jesus. See all of his promises and trust him. You've seen the best news in the world this morning. See all that Jesus promises to be to you and trust him. He will forgive you for all your sins. He will change your heart. You might feel very unspiritual. You might feel like I have no faith at all. He will take care of that. Turn to him and say, help me. I trust you to change my heart. Change my heart. He will. He'll forgive you. He'll change you. And he'll fill and satisfy you. We would love to pray for you about that before you go. But if you're not yet trusting Jesus Christ, turn to him right now. Put your trust in him. Be forgiven. Start the change process. Be filled. We pray you would do that. And let me just pray for all of us now. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. God, I pray for your power to use the truths of Genesis 25 to change our hearts today. Lord, I pray for those of us here who are in the grip of unforgiveness. There's someone we're not forgiving. Lord, we plead with you for our brother, our sister who's here. Would you help them right now? Would you help them to turn their eyes from the loss, from the pain, and let them look to you right now and your promises. You will restore them. You will confirm them. You will strengthen them. You will establish them. You're the God of all grace. You've called them to your eternal glory in Christ. Lord, let them see you more clearly right now and fill their hearts, heal their hearts, 
and fill their hearts with love and compassion and forgiveness for those who've hurt them. And Lord, for anyone here who's not yet trusting Jesus, does not yet know forgiveness, does not yet know your heart-satisfying presence, Lord, right now, show them your glory. Right now, turn their hearts toward you. Right now, draw them to Christ, Father, we pray. Let them bow before Jesus and confess sin and turn from sin and put their trust in your Holy Son and be forgiven and changed and saved. Do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.